Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 to 33. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken." Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. Well, my name is Sean, one of the pastors on our team here, and I would like to wish you a happy Easter. That's right. We're in the season of Easter, everybody. It's not just one day. Come on. We are in the season known as Easter Tide that lasts between Easter the day and Pentecost. There are seven Sundays or 49 days between these two pivotal celebrations in the church calendar. The resurrection that comes at Easter isn't something that can be contained in just one day. Maybe, maybe it's you or maybe you know someone who likes to celebrate a birthday month instead of a, just a birthday, you know? Same vibes right here. We can't just celebrate Easter on one day. It needs to continue to be celebrated. Again, that's why we have seven Sundays in this Easter season with the Feast of Easter outlasting the fast of Lent. Lent only lasts six Sundays. 
As the late Pope John Paul II famously said, we are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. So as Easter people, we will be looking at how the death and resurrection of Jesus both impacted and ignited the early church. Uh, We're going to be looking at the lectionary text uh, throughout this season in the book of Acts. And what we'll hopefully be able to see is this truth, that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to talk about resurrection today. And so, as always, some context for the book of the Bible that we will be spending these next few months exploring. The book of Acts is really a unified story with the Gospel of Luke. It's the same author. Uh, Both books are addressed uh, to some random person named Theophilus. And Acts 1-1 begins like this. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he's saying, hey, in that Gospel of Luke, which I wrote, that was all about what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. Now, in the book of Acts, we see what comes after the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Even though it is a different phase in the story, the same main idea remains true. This is the inauguration of the inclusive kingdom of God. It embraces insider and outsider, Jew and Gentile, any and all in God's redemptive work of salvation and the reconciliation of all things. We're going to get a good sampling of the entire book of Acts over, again, the next few weeks and months. Uh, But today, as you heard, our text comes from Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Um, Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why are we doing a sermon from Pentecost? I just said that Pentecost comes in like seven weeks from now. And so why are we talking about Peter's sermon from Pentecost today? Well, the short answer is we follow the lectionary, whatever's on the list, okay? The more theologically and philosophically rich and deep answer is this. The resurrection of Jesus, what we celebrate on Easter, and the giving of what the Holy Spirit, of what we celebrate on Pentecost, are integrally tied together. They need each other. So, as we address Peter's sermon, again, this is biblical Peter, not any of our Pete's, uh, we are going to look at it in three parts. The first part which explains uh, all the stuff going on with Pentecost. You know, the weird stuff, the tongues of fire, all of that. Uh, We are actually gonna talk about that on Pentecost Sunday. The second part of Peter's sermon is what we just heard Dave read for us. We're gonna talk about it today. And the third chunk, which includes the end of his sermon and how the people respond to it, we are gonna talk about next week. So with Peter preaching on Pentecost, there are a couple things that's important for us to know. This original day of Pentecost occurred uh, during something called the Festival of Weeks, which was a harvest festival in Judaism. What that meant is this was a pilgrimage festival. So Jews had traveled to Jerusalem from all over. So some of the people, when he addresses the crowd, uh, they may have already been in Jerusalem for the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection, uh, but they probably didn't understand it or didn't know all that had happened or what had gone on. Maybe They had been eyewitnesses to part of Jesus' life or part of his death, but uh, maybe they just had heard rumblings. uh, Jesus was just a name to many of them. Maybe he was just the name of a criminal. And so in our text today, Peter seeks to change all that. You may know the name of Jesus, but I want to tell you and show you who he really is. So again, our text begins with verse 14. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. If you are a Ted Lasso fan, this is the equivalent of Roy just going, Oi! (laughs) Right? And everybody knows, okay, you got to listen up, all right? Listen to what I am saying. And again, we're going to skip the first chunk of the sermon, but that is where he, again, explains the wind, the babbling, the tongues of fire. 
talks about the prophetic book of Joel, but then he changes tack and he says this. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So on this day of Pentecost, on the day when we see maybe the first large-scale opportunity for the disciples to explain this whole Jesus guy that they had been following around for the past few years, what does Peter ground everything in? The resurrection. It's the resurrection. For the early Christian community, everything depended on the resurrection. It was the foundation of their proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ. Last week uh, in his Easter message, our Pete, uh, he mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. It says this, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So biblical Peter is making it clear that the starting point for faith in Jesus, in the God of restoration and reconciliation, that starting point is the resurrection. An event that took place, a thing that happened. Because the Gospels record that there were questions about what had happened with this whole experience, what had actually happened to the body of Jesus. There were questions about whether his body was really raised from the dead. And so Peter is trying to answer some of these questions in his sermon. First, he is saying there is a continuity of events here. That the Jesus who was from Nazareth, the Jesus who preached in the region of Galilee, and the Jesus who was crucified and buried here in Jerusalem is the same Jesus who was resurrected and appeared to the community. It's one and the same. Among other appearances by Jesus, his post-resurrection appearances included speaking with the women at the tomb, uh, being with the disciples in the upper room, uh, with two friends walking on the road to Emmaus, cooking fish uh, on the beach for the disciples. Who doesn't love someone who makes breakfast for you, right? So his followers, they probably wanted Jesus to come back from the dead with blaring trumpets or a choir of angels, and maybe even some of them wanted him to come back with an army. But Jesus slipped back into his followers' lives in fairly unassuming ways. But beyond this close community, Paul also tells us that in the book of Corinthians that Jesus appeared to 500 people all at once. And what Paul says, as there are these questions about the resurrection, he says, most of those people are still alive. As I write this letter, those people are still alive. Go ask them. Go talk to them. They will tell you that Jesus was resurrected. Find out what they saw. Because when it came to the account of Jesus' resurrection, it's important that there was both an empty tomb and that there were appearances by Jesus. If you only had one of these two things, you could kind of explain away the other. If, if the tomb was just empty, a, a grave robber, someone else nefarious could have just taken the body. We wouldn't have known any better. If you only had appearances by Jesus, uh, they could be written off as harshly as hallucinations or as meaningful as experiences maybe you've had or you've heard about uh, yourself after losing a loved one and it feels like their presence is around, oh, those people, they really love Jesus. Of course they thought they saw him, right? But no, both of these things happened, the empty tomb and the appearances by Jesus, working together for Peter in this sermon, for Paul and as his missionary journeys, and the early Christians to confirm the veracity of the resurrection. 
There were others in that day and some today who argue that the resurrection of Jesus uh, was merely a metaphor. It wasn't a physical reality. And to be fair, uh, resurrection is sometimes used as a metaphor in the New Testament to talk about a new life, a life where everything is going to be different. And we're going to talk about that in a few moments. But when early Christians talked about the resurrection, it was always rooted in the claim that they were talking about something that actually happened in a physical body. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, and it was never used about this vague sense of possibility or this metaphor for hope. Uh, N.T. Wright is maybe the most preeminent resurrection theologian. Uh, he has actually a 1,500-page book on it, if anybody would like to read it. Check in with me in 10 years, um, when I'll be done with it, too. Uh, when the first followers of Jesus used this word, anastasis, when they used the word resurrection, they meant that his physical body had died, but was now alive in a whole new way. That Jesus, he went through death and out the other side, but back into the world in which he was emphatically embodied. Jesus, Jesus was both physically human pre and post Easter. This was important. Now, I've said before that I really like to cook. I like to try new things in the kitchen, uh, mostly because I like to eat. And I was talking with a friend yesterday, uh, and what came up is I am not a huge baker. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love to eat baked goods, but I find the process to be a bit too constricting. It feels like you gotta be so exact with baking. It's like a science, you gotta measure everything, you gotta do all of the steps in the right order, and you have to follow a plan. What I like about cooking you know, is wheeling and dealing. You know, we're playing chopped with the pantry in the house, figuring it out as you go. And when it comes to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it was definitely more baker vibes than cooking vibes, okay? In our text today, Peter says that this was the plan all along, that the resurrection of Jesus was not a change in plans. It was not a deft maneuver at the last moment. It was not figuring out you don't actually have sugar in the pantry and trying to substitute something. You can't. Um, <laughs> this was God's plan from the start. Verse 23 describes it as God's deliberate plan that God's plan of salvation always intended to reach its climax with the long-awaited Messiah of Israel undertaking the ultimate rescue. That in Jesus, we would see a confrontation with the empire, empire marked by Rome, and with the corrupt hierarchy of the temple. That he challenges both of these establishments and he challenges the very forces of violence themselves. So this is where Peter begins. And so he, Peter wants to expand on this, and he wants to articulate how this long-term plan has developed. And so he turns to the scriptures to solidify his arguments for Jesus and the resurrection. Verses 25 to 28 in our text today actually come right out of Psalm 16. It says this, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So Peter's explanation, which is, uh, happens over the next few verses, verses, works like this. He says, this was a Psalm of David. 
It speaks of a way of life in which one who dies will not be abandoned. They will not suffer the usual fate of the decaying of the flesh. Instead, because of God's faithfulness, this person will somehow come through death and out the other side. But Peter says, I can tell you that even though this psalm was written by David, it's not about David. And how does Peter say that he knows this? He says, because I know that David is super dead. Like for real, for real, his tomb is right over there. David is dead. You can see that his body and flesh are decaying. And since that can't be doubted, since we know that is true about David, it is clear that this psalm must be read prophetically about the coming Messiah who has found its long-awaited answer in Jesus. And as I'm sure many of you have heard in countless sermons, there are tons of Old Testament prophecies that we can see find their completion in Jesus. This one here that Peter talks about in Psalm 16, it's not super well-known or popular. It's a little bit of a deep cut. This is like when a Dave Matthews fan tells you their favorite song. You've never heard of it, right? That's two weeks in a row, Dave Matthews fan jokes, yeah. So uh, why this text? Again, it's kind of a random psalm here. Why does he choose this one? Peter chooses this one because its emphasis is about the body not decomposing, about the body not decaying. It's not about uh, the elevation to some non-physical sphere or spiritual reality. It is about the incorruption of the body. Rather than decaying, it received new life, and so it is with Jesus because he is the long-awaited Messiah. In verse 32, says this, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. So remember when we began this sermon, I said that some of the people listening to Peter uh, would have known the name Jesus, maybe heard something about him, some might have had no clue who he was, but after pointing to both the event of the resurrection and giving this kind of scriptural rationale, Peter has moved on from merely addressing the crowd, hey, everybody listen up to what I'm saying, and he says this, we are all witnesses. Again, he says, listen up. This Jesus is more than just a name. He is more than a prophet and a good man. He is the Messiah, the Holy One proclaimed by David and the other prophets. This is the Savior that we've been waiting for. Whether you saw Jesus with your own eyes, you're hearing this for the first time right now, you are now a witness. You cannot claim ignorance to this Jesus person anymore. On top of that, because we believe that God continues to speak to us through Scripture today, Peter's claim that we are all witnesses weaves together past, present, and future. Peter names all of us, you and me, as witnesses too. That witness has become a category that stretches through time from the original listeners to you and me today, and we've all been charged to testify with our lives of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So when we think about Peter's sermon and when we think about the resurrection of Jesus, two things can be true. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus happened. You know, this is like 2,000-ish years ago. This is the foundational event of our faith. That's why Peter talks about it here. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, and that is a huge deal. It wasn't just a metaphor. It didn't involve some separation of the physical and the spiritual. It was about those two things coming together in one person. So resurrection happened to Jesus one time 2,000 years ago. But you know what the second thing is? Resurrection is still happening today. 
as best as we can. We need to try and grasp the sheer miracle of Jesus' death and resurrection, and we need to see that it is more than a one-time thing just for Jesus. We don't celebrate that resurrection happened. We celebrate that resurrection happens. That's what we are doing in this Easter season. It's not just that it happened that one time. We celebrate that resurrection happens. Richard Rohr says that we need to enlarge our view of resurrection from a one-time miracle in the life of Jesus to a pattern of creation that has always been true. This is what Paul argues for throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, which we quoted from earlier, but Paul says throughout that chapter that because Christ has been resurrected, so have all who believe in him. That resurrection is ongoing, that resurrection is still happening today. Now, last summer, we moved into a new house that was kind of essentially on a empty lot. So we've slowly been developing our backyard, putting some plants and things there. And one of the things we've done is uh, put in some raised bed to grow vegetables. And working in the garden is one of Penny's favorite things to do. She has this little mini yellow watering can, and she goes to the window, and she goes, water, water. I don't know why she has a French accent, but she does. She developed it somewhere, and she goes, what air, what air? And as a part of developing this, this is the first time that we're doing this, right? We've really been working on our composting game. And uh, for many of us, myself included not that long ago, uh, the idea of keeping piles of rotting food scraps um, was kind of nasty and definitely weird. Um, but for us, in our family, it has become a spiritual practice, an example of resurrection for us. Because scraps that were destined for a landfill inside a plastic bag instead become the good soil for plants to grow. That out of death, out of wasted things, new life arises. And resurrection, of course, is a big theme in our faith. But many times when we talk about resurrection, uh, sometimes when people talk about it, they, they don't actually mean resurrection. They mean resuscitation. Now, if you are a medical person, a first responder, you've probably experienced what it's like uh, to be resuscitated. For the rest of us, right, we've seen it on shows and movies. You know, someone shouts clear, right? They do the paddles. Uh, someone performing mouth-to-mouth, like squints in Sandlot, you know, planning it for years. Um, <laughs> resuscitation involves, you know, someone who's flatlining, someone who's not breathing being reanimated to life. And sometimes when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we speak of it as resuscitation, as if it is just him coming back to life. So what's the difference? Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Lazarus. He was resuscitated because he was brought back to the same life that he had before dying. This was still incredible. This was still amazing. This was still a miracle. But eventually, he grew old and died again. But when Jesus was brought back to life, while maintaining who he was, he was a new creation, one who the disciples could hardly recognize at first. The new life that he was resurrected into was one which knew no more death. Jesus would not die again after having been resurrected into the fullness of Christ. We see that merely being resuscitated brings us back to our old life, but being resurrected takes us to a new life where we are a new creation. And so as we continue to ruminate on the resurrection of Jesus, I wonder what it would look like for us to evaluate if we are living as those who've been resurrected by Christ or merely as those who've been resuscitated by Christ. Does our life of following Jesus reflect that we are different than we were before him? 
I know that I can get bogged down in living a life of resuscitation, of being comfortable in what I believe or how I act or how I live or how I treat people, that I can feel as if I've been brought back to life. I know that. But there are some areas of my life that I'm not willing to let my way of being change because of Jesus. Now, I uh, regret to inform you I will be hitting my Wendell Berry quota once again today. Um, Many people know that he was a professor, a farmer, an author, a theologian. Not everyone knows that he is a poet. Um, He has a seminal poem uh, combining many of these areas of his life called Manifesto, and the whole thing is great. I think everyone should read it. Don't have time for the whole thing today. But it artfully and whimsically challenges our notions of success, of happiness, of our never-ending desire for more, and it looks towards a different way of living. Some of the pieces of of advice that he offers in it, he says to love someone who does not deserve it. Uh, And speaking against the short-term nature of profits, he says to invest in the millennium, plant sequoias, and to be joyful though you have not considered all the facts. But the last line of the poem is two words and two words only. It's practice resurrection. These words hit home so deeply with Eugene Peterson, he titled a book, Practice Resurrection, based on Wendell Berry's poem. For Berry and for Peterson, this idea of practicing resurrection was essential to being a fully formed and mature disciple of Jesus. When we practice resurrection, we are reminded of Peter's words that we're all witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, that we demonstrate the power of God's redemption of the world and how we live and love, that practicing resurrection is obeying Jesus' call to love our neighbors and our enemies, that when we practice resurrection, we recognize that this event happens without any help or comment or input from us, reminding us of God's provision that's not up to us, When we practice resurrection, we enter into more than what we are. When we practice resurrection, we keep company with Jesus. When we're only resuscitated, we return to a life of the old fears, anxieties, the spiritual failings of the past. We don't let Jesus invade every area of our lives. We keep him compartmentalized. He's for Sunday mornings. He's for quiet times. He's for religious stuff. But being resurrected takes us to a new life where we are made complete and whole by love alone. To be resurrected into a life of perfect love is to know the peace that Christ gives us, a peace that's not of this world, but of a world in which love, unconditional love, is the only thing that truly matters. So if I return to my question, if all of us here were to offer some honest self-reflection, myself included, Do you feel as if you are practicing resurrection or practicing resuscitation? If we, like Peter, are to ground our faith in the resurrection of Jesus and believe that we have been resurrected and that resurrection is still happening today, how are we to live differently? Because it's when we begin to see that living as a new creation means that Jesus invades every area of who we are, of how we live, of how we think, and how we act. So what are the areas in your life and in my life that you have kept hidden away and might need to be opened up to practice resurrection? Is it how you see practicing your faith? Might you need to expand beyond a Sunday mentality to an everyday pursuit of practicing the way of Jesus? Maybe you need to practice resurrection in how you think and relate to others. I stumbled across this quote from a D.C. area pastor named Duke Kwan, and he said, 
It's impossible to love someone you disagree with when you secretly believe they need Jesus more than you do. Ooh, <laughs> that wrecked me. I've been doing some soul searching on that one. Am I practicing resurrection in that way? Maybe for you and for me, God will continue to transform our hearts to not only see ourselves as a new creation, but to see others that way too. Maybe you've only been resuscitated when we start using the word justice. In the past few years, somehow, some way, in some circles, justice has become a bad word. For some people, it's become a woke word. For others, the only word worth talking about. What would it look like for you to move from apathy to compassion when we seek to live out the biblical command to seek justice? A justice that cannot be separated from the life and the love of Jesus, of justice for our unhoused neighbors, of justice for minorities in our country, particularly our black and brown brothers and sisters who have been and continue to be the victims of systemic oppression, and justice as we sit in the never-ending news about gun violence. I hope you'll join us uh, as we navigate into these waters concerning um, nonviolence and faith at the end of the month, as Amy was talking about. Read the book, join us for that four-week group. But I find myself more and more fed up with the way we talk about violence and guns in this country, but even more so as Christians. We can and should be leading the way of nonviolence, of reflecting the teachings of Jesus, and maybe most poignantly in this season of Easter, of how the cross showed the complete and utter folly of violence. So much so that the disciples' views on violence completely changed before and after the resurrection. If you remember in in the garden, they were willing to use violence as Jesus is arrested. But after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, not that long, in, in a few chapters in the book of Acts, we will get the first Christian martyr, Stephen, And as he dies, he will say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Instead of choosing violence, of willing to give up his life. The deep spirit of Jesus' way of living out of God's kingdom has changed within them because the resurrection has shown them that the way to victory is not by fighting, it's not by force of arms, but it's by the way of the cross and the resurrection which follows. They've seen that the answer to violence is never more violence. And that's as radical today as it was back then, that here's the thing, we don't enter into this contentious conversation about gun violence and gun control as Democrats or Republicans or independents or conservatives or liberals or gun owners or non-gun owners. We enter into this conversation as those who practice resurrection, and we choose life. So maybe for you, practicing resurrection is engaging with your views of violence or guns or that bad word of justice. Maybe how you practice resurrection versus resuscitation is in your relationship to the rest of creation. I, as you know, think this is incredibly important. Might practicing resurrection look like getting your hands in the dirt or starting to compost or prioritizing time outside, making choices to limit the effects of climate change. Maybe you've experienced loss or in a winter season of the soul, and I wonder if practicing resurrection might look like grieving differently or allowing the presence of God to be your ever-present helper and casting your anxiety onto Jesus because he cares for you. Grieving as we practice resurrection is so different than we practice resuscitation. Because ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus, it changed everything for us. It's the capstone of his life. It demonstrates God's never-ending commitment to us. 
is not only the proof of God's power, but as Paul says, it is the down payment for the resurrection for all of us. We see that resurrection isn't about an escape from this life, but it is the initiation of the age of the Holy Spirit. That it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live and practice resurrection. That when we try and do it on our own, we try and do it without the aid of the Spirit, we can only be resuscitated. But the Holy Spirit changes it. That even in our weakness, even when our strength seems to fail, even when we don't give our whole selves or that area or that one thing I really like or that political issue that's really important to me and I have an unwavering stance on, when we reach the end of our resources, that's when the abundance of God is put on display. That's when the Holy Spirit is our strength and sustainer. So, Antioch family, may we be an Easter people who witness to those around us that the way of the cross leads to the practice of resurrection. Amen.